0: Today's episode originally aired back in February. It's one of our favorites, so in case you missed it, we thought we'd give you another chance to listen. I mean, how, how long have you covered the EPA?
2: So I never, it's funny, people keep saying I cover the EPA, and it's never something I've ever sought to do, uh, and I've never thought of myself as somebody who covers the EPA.
0: What Suzanne Rust sought to do years ago was become a scientist. She worked as a biologist at a fishery, But now she's a reporter at the L.A. Times, where, yeah, she covers the Environmental Protection Agency.
2: What I've covered is, uh, the way I like to think about it, is industry's role on science and environmental policy. And that happens to end up a lot in the EPA.
0: The scientific method still governs Suzanne's work. She thinks about cause and effect.
2: There are all of these influences around us, toxins or climate or air pollution that affect all of us at a very fundamental level. It wasn't until I became a reporter that I began to see that there were these connections between not just the science of all of these things, but the way we understand that science. And that really, really became interesting to me. I moved from just the the pure science and the interest in the science to what's what's controlling the way we're exposed to this stuff and, and who's deciding how much of this can we have.
0: Suzanne was one of the first journalists to report about the danger of BPA in plastics. Even now, she keeps a close eye on how the government figures out which chemicals are risky. Last year, when the EPA proposed a new rule for how they do that, she looked it up and
2: I see this little paragraph in this proposal, which says that they're going to throw away the way they've done this for 40 or 50 years, which is we're going to assume there's some harm and we're going to control around that. And instead, we're going to look into the idea that maybe this is these chemicals and these exposures and radiation are actually good for you.
0: I'm just going to interrupt Suzanne really quickly because, yes... She just said that the EPA is considering the possibility that exposure to some chemicals and radiation could be good for you. Which is why she started asking her same questions. Who's behind this new regulation? And what are they thinking? And
2: a name that kept popping up was this Ed Calabrese person. I just figured, this seems weird, right? He seems, he seems really well-published, but there's something off here. And the idea that he's pushing a theory that industry loves suggests to me that there's more to this story than here's just a guy who has a strong feeling about something.
0: There is more to this story. Today, Suzanne's going to tell us how one man is trying to shift how an entire federal agency does business. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next?, Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. Or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So you looked at this one scientist in particular who seems to have become really like a linchpin at the EPA. Tell me a little bit about Ed Calabrese.
2: So Ed Calabrese uh, got his Ph.D. in the 1970s and became a full professor in the early 1980s. He calls himself a toxicologist, but looking back at old CVs, he was actually an entomologist. That's what his uh, Ph.D. was in. Or a- actually, it was I believe it was in zoology, but he specialized in insects. And for probably the first five, six years of his career, he sort of put together his research by stringing together government grants. So he got stuff from the state of Massachusetts and from the EPA. And he was looking at additives in drinking water. He was looking at concentrations of chemicals in soil. And sometime around 1985, looking at his CV, suddenly industry funded money starts appearing and it gradually increases over the years and he gets more and more and more and more. And eventually, I think, you know, maxed out at about $10 million.
0: He started getting funding from the tobacco industry, right?
2: Well, yes. So the funding from the tobacco industry doesn't show up on his CV initially. But if you go into the tobacco industry documents, it's through the University of California, San Francisco. You can get it online. It was all pulled out uh, during the tobacco lawsuits and discovery. And you can search for somebody like Ed Calabrese. There's evidence that the tobacco industry was reaching out to him. So they sent an agent out to him in, I can't recall the year, but it was in the early 1980s, to go meet with him at the University of Massachusetts. Dr. Calabrese says he has no memory of this, but the guy came back and reported to R.J. Reynolds that he had met him, and he thought uh, Calabrese seemed like a good guy.
0: It sounds like espionage, It sounds like recruiting a spy from a competing country.
2: So Calabrese is sort of my first entree into sort of looking at one person and their interaction with the tobacco industry. But it was clear that was the tobacco industry's M.O. They would find somebody and send an agent in to sort of feel them out and talk to them and It's unclear, again, whether Calabrese needed funding for his research at the time or whether the ideology was just attractive to him. But by the mid to late 1980s, he was sending in proposals to the tobacco industry, which suggested that he would be willing to look at things such as the problem with using animals in risk assessment, why the EPA risk assessments weren't good, or why the safety factors that they put in for particular chemicals were too high they should be lower so so those were a couple of things he was he was clearly willing to look at areas that other scientists might think from a public health or environmental standpoint probably
0: not conducive to public health or environmental health and around this time he's sort of beginning to formulate his own ideas about toxicology right
2: he says it was an idea he's he's had for a long time. And it wasn't until maybe the late 1980s, early 1990s that he went to a conference that was sponsored by the tobacco industry on the West Coast. And he met people there who were promoting this idea that low doses of cancer-causing agents or radiation are actually really good for cells and uh, human health. And it was at that point that he went back and realized that this was an idea and a theory that he thought needed to be brought out by his research and incorporated into risk assessments
1: and dose assessments and and we've had 40 years of regulatory action by EPA being guided by a mistaken model and and how this plays out in terms of the public is that it it, it creates a terrible misrepresentation for for what is harm what we should worry about priorities and, and the- So this
0: idea that low doses of harmful chemicals and radiation could be actually beneficial what was the reaction of the rest of the scientific community when he began to talk about this more and more loudly he was
2: uh, immediately uh, received with skepticism by the majority of uh, public health and environmental health toxicologists. The idea does ring of an industry-backed idea. However, there is ample evidence. We use drugs all the time that you should only take small doses of, because at larger doses, uh, they can provide problems. So the idea itself is not a bad idea, but the idea that you would apply it when deciding how we are going to control these agents that are in our environment, that are coming out of smokestacks or leaking into our food. That was aberrant and still is to the majority of toxicologists.
0: Was he trying to sort of get the EPA to kind of buy into this idea that maybe we need to be thinking about toxic chemicals differently?
2: Yes. So that's where... Calabrese sort of separates himself from other toxicologists. He started not just writing about the experiments he was seeing, but began opining, and he has a ton of opinion pieces and essays.
1: Now, many people grew up and they are still brainwashed. Many are still brainwashed within the EPA and other regulatory agencies, holding on to a flawed uh, science. How do you uh, uncultivize, uh, essentially, Hundreds, maybe many hundreds of scientists within EPA and other regulatory agencies to to move on from where they are, and and I have to say I went through that that process myself. It's not an easy process.
0: It sounds like Professor Calabrese was sort of seen as a curiosity in the scientific community. Like he would publish articles in respected journals about his theory that we can give low doses of chemicals and radiation, things that can be harmful, and they might actually be okay. But then there was this switch when the Trump administration came into office and all of a sudden his ideas weren't just a curiosity. They were something that people in power were very interested in.
2: You're absolutely right. And it it may have happened even slightly before that. So the beauty of science, it's all about asking questions, and it's really fueled by curiosity. So when somebody proposes something like that, others begin to look, and they try it out, and they test it out. And I think in toxicological circles, at least my understanding is, people were curious about what he said. But when when he began sort of expanding it beyond just sort of the curiosity and the interest and look at it happens here, look at it happens here, and pushing in his papers for let's approach everything like this, we're going to develop policy around an idea that everything at low doses is good for you, was alarming. Clearly, when the Trump administration came in and Scott Pruitt became the administrator of the EPA, this idea was suddenly not just sort of relegated to an interesting sideshow any longer. It was suddenly put into federal policy, proposed federal policy. And it was really alarming to many.
0: A lot of your reporting is focused on this very wonky rule, the strengthening transparency and regulatory science rule. Tell me about that.
2: It's it's mostly about epidemiological research. But there was this small little paragraph in there that had to do with the way that the EPA was going to test chemicals. And since the 1950s or 1960s, the way federal agencies have have done this has always been to really protect the public. If they don't know something, their default is, let's assume it's going to provide a little harm. So let's put the burden on industry to stop it and not on the United States population and public to hopefully endure it and not get cancer.
0: And it's this idea that makes sense, which is like exposure is kind of this upward line. So if a lot of radiation causes a lot of harm, then a little radiation probably causes harm too, probably a little bit less, right? That's the idea. But I
2: think any toxicologist you talk to will tell you that is a really good general rule to follow, particularly when we don't know anything. At this low dose level, it is very unclear how all these chemicals interact with one another, how the human body deals with it. Different species may react differently. Cells may react differently. And there's just a really a lot of unknown. And so what the public agencies have routinely done and said is, let's just take an approach that is protective of public health and the environment. And we know it works. We've done it for years. Let's just keep going that way. This new rule, what it, what it basically says is we're going to throw out that default. And what it basically means is the EPA can't move, or any agency, move forward On providing regulations because it is just too complicated.
0: What's interesting is you filed this Freedom of Information Act request because Dr. Calabrese works at University of Massachusetts Amherst, and you were able to see his correspondence and really see how this rule came from him.
2: Yes, that was fascinating. Just to take a step back, when I filed the Public Records Act, I got a ton of information back from it, and none of it was redacted. And I discovered later when I was talking to Dr. Calabrese, he was the one who pulled all the emails for me and sent them along. Awkward. (laughs) Yeah. But in any case, it appears that once Trump came in, Dr. Calabrese realized that the world had changed for him. And he reached out to uh, his friend, Steve Malloy, who's a notorious climate denier he calls people who believe in climate change, climate bedwetters, reached out to him and said, hey, we've got new people in charge. Can we now start pushing for my idea that, you know, radiation is really good for you at low levels? So then beginning in April 2018, Clint Woods, who's, the, who's a deputy administrator in the EPA and who used to work for an organization that is funded by the tobacco industry, reached out to him and said, hey, we know each other. We've met several times. Curious if uh, we can talk together about this new policy we're writing and maybe we can talk about this paradigm that the EPA has used for decades. Maybe we can see if we can do something about it. And right away, Dr. Calabrese wrote back and said, I'm "Happy to do it." And here is the way I think you should write it into your proposal. And he offered—I can't remember if it was three or four sentences. And Clint Woods at the EPA said, "This is great." Then Dr. Calabrese said, "Wait, let's change it a little." Sent it back. Dr. Woods said, "Fabulous." And then Dr. Calabrese said, "Wait, let me just switch it one more time to make it even stronger." Clint Woods took it, and a week later, it was inserted into the federal policy, basically word for word. So he wrote the law.
0: The rule that we've been talking about, it's had public comment, it's had public hearing. Where, What is the status of the rule right now?
2: So it's on hold. They have received something like 600,000 comments. They were unable to tell me when they're actually going to make a final ruling on it. Uh, I I believe the comment period is closed. Uh, So it's just just sort of sitting there. And uh, I was not able to get from the EPA what is going to happen or when anything is going to happen.
0: I wonder even if this regulation went into effect, how much of a difference it would make. So I've done reporting on lead and the fact that lead is in this same category of something that we assume at low levels has a bad impact. But the fact is that we all know lead is everywhere. And the EPA or whoever actually can't really regulate it like that. They can't crack down on lead. We just sort of accept lead is everywhere. And so even though the EPA regulates it in this way, it's not actually having any impact to get it out of the environment. And so I wonder if the new rule would really change anything. It it is unclear. But
1: what
2: it could conceivably do in the short term, if it is passed, is there could be reassessments of chemicals like arsenic in water or the amount of radiation that workers are allowed to be exposed to when they show up for work at Los Alamos or, or whatever. So standards could be rewritten if the EPA decides to embrace it. Uh, And what that means for all of us on chemicals that can actually be controlled is unclear and unknown, and I think for a lot of people, really scary. You know, people talk about bureaucracy and government and how just nothing moves and things sit around for years and nothing changes. The EPA would say, all right, we're going to test this chemical, and then 10, 15 years later, they still hadn't tested it. And I think what's astonishing with this new administration is suddenly how quickly things that have been sort of ingrained within federal policy and regulation, uh, risk assessments, are changing.
0: Yeah. I mean, it struck me, too, that, like... No one really. There was not a lot of love lost for the EPA among scientists, in my experience as a reporter. A lot of scientists took issue with the EPA and the kind of equivocating that the organization could do. But now that seems like great. Bring that back. It's it is funny. Yes, I agree. Uh,
2: when I used to speak to you know public health officials or toxicologists or. Uh, endocrinologists, there was a lot of frustration with the EPA and how long they took. They seem resistant to change. And what's happening now is is completely novel and new. I think everybody's looking at it now with a different perspective of, please bring back the old EPA where they took time before they changed anything, because we really want some input. We'd really like them to think about what we're saying here before they do something that can affect us all and, you know, potentially affect generations to come.
0: Suzanne Rust, thank you so much for telling me more about your reporting. Hey, thank you for having me. Suzanne Rust is a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. All right, that's the show. Today's episode originally aired in February. That proposed rule, it's still out there. Andrew Wheeler, the current EPA administrator, said it may be finalized by the end of the year. Before you go into the weekend, one last recommendation go and check out my friend Mike Pesca's podcast, The Gist. Today's episode looks at everything that can go wrong when you put cops on reality TV. Turns out it's quite a lot. Go check it out. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. I'm Mary Harris, and I will talk to you next week.